Hi, welcome to Chicana Code Switchers. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicanas in our master's program. We are also scholar practitioners in student affairs. This podcast is intended to provide insights into higher education with a focus on social justice and pláticas of student experiences. With that being said, let's start the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this new episode with Chicana Code Switchers. My name is Ariana, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host of this podcast, Patricia. Hi, Ariana. We definitely missed you in the last episode. It was weird not recording with you, (laughs) but I'm happy to have you back. Yes, yes. I'm happy to be back, and we have a wonderful um, episode this week uh, with a great guest that you that I'll that I'm happy to introduce. Uh, her name is Mayra Puente. Her pronouns are she, her, hers, and ella. And she is a student retention and success graduate student researcher for UC San Diego's Office of the Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs. And she has a BA in political science with a concentration in race, ethnicity, and politics, and a double minor in education studies and Chicanx studies from UCLA uh, that she obtained in 2017. She's a currently a second-year PhD student in the Department of Education Studies at UC San Diego in the doctoral program, Transforming Education in a Diverse Society. So um, also Mayra is an hija de Elvia Bedoya y Jose Manuel Puente. She's also an older sister to three young Chicanas Latinas and a femtron to rural Chicanx Latinx students and families from California's Central Valley. Currently, Mayra is in her second PhD. She is a second year PhD student in the Department of Education Studies at UC San Diego. Mayra also uses her diverse background as a member of a farm working family community, culturally relevant mentoring approaches and emerging identity as an interdisciplinary and radical Chicana feminist scholar to resist epistemological racism and sexism rampant in academia and research. Her deep and unwavering commitment to studying college access and uh, choice for rural Chicanx Latinx students is rooted in her own educational experiences, experiences that were shaped and bounded by the agricultural fields of East Portobello, California. Additionally, Mayra's um, assistantship graduate assistantship with the Office of Student Affairs has contributed to her growing interest in college transition and navigation process of students of color and their sense of belonging on university campuses like UC San Diego. In her free time, Mayra uh, enjoys visiting neighborhoods and communities of San Diego filled with Chicanx Latinx art and eating tacos. Uh, (laughs) So we can start with um, our check-in and then we'll uh, go on with our episode. So um, this week I was telling um, all three of us, we had this like conversation before recording. Um, and one of those like biggest themes that came up for me because um, this video went viral and there, it was a, a video of, um, I believe, a woman of color who became a teenage mom in high school um, and had her daughter who was six years old, like had a... Um, a little doll in a box and the doll was dressed like a doctor and she showed it to her dad or her grandpa and her grandpa like I think um mentioned like oh like her mom was going to become a doctor and the the dad was like bursted into like 
joy and like tears and like um and it was just like one of those reactions that we all like wish we had with our families and stuff like that and so uh for me what brought up and and I remember these kind of viral videos going on when I was in high school and was like applying to colleges and stuff like that and so when I told my parents that I got in we got into this discussion about like our family's connection, like connecting with our families and like bringing in, in into our educational journeys. And um, we all discuss like kind of like what, how we, the relationship that we have with our parents and the fact that it's like, we don't have those kind of moments. Um, especially with like advising, I hear often like students say like how they have like toxic relationships or hardly any relationships with their parents. And and it brought me to like the kind of resentment that I build up through time with my parents and like the disconnection we built because of my um, academic, like what I wanted to do in academia and later on discovered through time, like now I want to go to graduate school. So when I first told my parents that I got into college, it was like dead silent, like, okay. You know, like, there's no that reaction. And so it's like kind of like we building ourselves up for like, this is what we'd wish. And this is our expectations. But in reality, it's very different. Um, because our parents like, you know, experience some, like, my parents, particularly, were more worried than happy. Especially since my older mm-hmm. sister had gone to UC Davis, the costs were more on their head than being able to experience the joy of all the accomplishments and things that I wanted to pursue. Like it was always like thinking like what we can't as opposed to what we could um, provide. So I was telling um, Ariana that like, it's been, especially with my women's studies class, we were talking a lot about mothering and parenting and what does that look like in communities of color. And I've been really fascinated about this topic because um, I've often felt like, especially with our femme tourism, as you all, if you've listened to this podcast before, you've seen how Profa and Mariana were such a big influence in my life, in my academic trajectory, and they often became those academic parents where I could talk about these things and have this like relationship where they guided me in the, in 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 my life as and also as a as a person, and so those conversations I couldn't have with my parents and oftentimes it was because of the build of resentment through time and just being from going through the educational system here in the U.S. and in Mexico like there's just like this like disconnect and this I mean how do you expect the 13 year old to be like yeah you, do you understand the institutional racism and like the history of why things have been in not just in the U.S. but also Mexico and like the way that your parents experienced that and the violence that they had to go through and we were talking about how uh, we don't empathize often with like how our parents are even making so many more changes that they saw with their own parents and what they didn't want to pass down and we often don't give them enough credit and um, I was really fascinated by um, this uh, Instagram live from Latinx and parenting Latinx parenting or something like that my bad if I don't remember the Instagram handle and also um, with academic mommy the Instagram handle uh, where they were both discussing um, parenting in the Latinx community 
and this idea of like how do you also um, talk about intergenerational trauma within and how do you change that with your own parenting and what you hope to like pass down to your own parents and so um, seeing that like in academia how we also live in a very abusive relationship and parenting without abuse is like such a wild concept uh, within our families because of our histories that we've had Um, and so when I at the end of my last year, um, both Profa and Mariana were like, hey, you should invite your family to come visit your last research symposium. And I was telling Ariana, like, uh, like I did, I, I like just was like more in the conflict of like, oh my gosh, I have to like confront the fact that I actually haven't really invited my family a lot to my academic trajectory because of just the not wanting to explain a lot, not having to have them be in spaces that were very exclusive and just like, you know, like the the family where we do this all the time, instead of communicating the hardships, we hide them and don't want the other person to see like what we actually have to uh, experience. So I was like, you know what, I'm gonna do it. So I brought my mom and my grandma because it was so much easier to bring them than my dad because he can't take time off at work. And so I brought them in and I was telling um, both of you that it's like how when I opened up that that line of communication and that ex- like exposure to my world my grandma has been my first academic advisor um, and cheerleader and often the one that was having conversations with my parents and advocating for me to do these leadership trainings early on and and apply to college and do all these experiences and if I had to travel there like déjala ir you know like she would be the one like Mija, aquí están 200 dólares. You know, like those huge, you know, gestures of like support that look very different from viral videos, you know, and and what we see in like white families, what support looks like because um, my grandma showed it in a different way and my mom showed it in a different way as well. And so when I brought them to my research symposium, um, my grandma was like talking to all of my friends, you know, like giving them pep talks of like support and listening to what they want to do. And she was just like, Sabes, like I would have become a lawyer maybe. And so if, since I didn't have that opportunity, I want you all to like really take advantage of this and help and support each other. And she was just like, you all need to support each other because you can't do it alone. And I like believe that all of you could like she was out there like riling them up. I was like, damn, grandma, you out here like giving us the support because we because it was towards the end of the year. And, you you know, we we need to hear that. And so um, a gentle reminder for anyone, please call your grandmas if you have (laughs) if you have that kind of support. Uh, We often get so like caught up in the mess that we don't like talk to them and, and know that they can actually help us more than we think that that they can't um, even though they're not in these spaces and so when they came my mom and her like had it's like these three generations of mujeres that like we each have experienced life differently but we all like are supporting one another and helping us each other realize different things that we could have done differently in the past and that like los consejos and conciencia have changed through through our time and so um um, I don't know what else, Ariana, do you wanted to add to your experience <laughs> about that? Yeah, so something that this reminds me about is my own 
um, conversation with my grandmother when I went to visit her in 2016. I it was the first time that I was allowed to travel outside of the U.S. So I used it um, via advanced parole. So I was able to go back and visit my grandparents. And I really wanted to connect with my grandmother about my future, because at that point, I think I, um, I was thinking of graduate school and I was thinking of like that, what that would entail, what that would mean moving forward. And I just wanted to basically get my grandmother's approval uh, about my like plans and my decisions. And given that she helped raise me for the first four years of my life, um, her, her input was very important. I valued it a lot. And so I told my grandmother that I, you know, I said, grandma, I'm thinking of going, getting my PhD. And although she doesn't understand what this means and she hasn't been in the U S and doesn't understand how things work, I try to explain it to her. And she, uh, and I told her with that, you know, I, I've made the decision that I don't want to have any kids. I want to focus on my professional career and I want to go as far as I can. And I just wanted to, you know, get her input. And basically she said, like, you know, Mija, like, that's fine. That's, you know, that's, you know, your decision and, and I support it. And so it was so simple and so straightforward. And, and I just um, appreciated her understanding and her empathy and this is someone that had 12, 12 kids of her own and five of them died when they were very little. Um, and so she lived what it was like to be a housewife and serving my, my grandfather and, you know, doing all those things. And, and for me, that meant a lot that she was able to provide me with that support, with that moral support and with that um, approval that when I told my dad, you know, eventually, uh, I think a few months later, I had this conversation with my dad over the phone about how I was applying for grad school and all these things. And he's like, oh, Mika, but you have to like, under, like you have to think about your future and you have to think about leaving retoños, you know, having offspring. And I, I'm like, what? <laughs> it was like, <laughs> stop the car, put the brakes on. <laughs> and I, I told him, I'm like, let me, you know, it was an opportunity for me to tell him at that point and just say you know dad I actually don't want to have any kids and I couldn't tell his facial expression there was just a, like a, a brief silence and and I said yeah I am thinking about my future that's why I'm applying for jobs and that's why I'm applying to PhD programs and because I am thinking about my future and like what that looks like is different you know from him what he considers you know is um typical to have at this point in my life and so I just wanted to be clear with him that you know his expectations of what my future looked like were different and so this this conversation really reminds me of that that for me like my grandmother was my one of these um, people that I wanted to make sure um, I got like her approval and even if it was like even if she didn't understand what it meant I, it just meant a lot to me to like move forward full charge, you know, and then my dad, then his opinion matters. But at that point, I had made up my mind. So yeah, that's me and, and how I'm like, receiving this conversation. Yeah. And then it's, it's like, not a sense of like approval, but it's like, we're looking at it more like a, can we get your blessing? Oh, like, yes. Can you and oftentimes I, I feel this more with my grandma. Like she definitely sees the whole me. 
and it, and it's different because you know it, she doesn't have to have me 24 7 you know like she could just be like you know what yeah. I did papas, right? <laughs> right after and it, the liability is very different and so it, it was the fact that like my grandma was like you know the way that she she gave her support was a lot more of like the validating of like I see you I recognize the effort that you're making and I see why you would make this decision and also they're in a different stage in their life and so mm-hmm. And they see what they've done with their own children and they're like, oh, let me give you, you know, these consejos to like my grandchildren. And so with my grandma and the way that she's uh, showed like a lot of strength and, and advice, it's more been through like life advice of um, the things that are important to, to me. And, and also like for me to understand like cuando ella da su like testimonios of her own past and what how she, what she had to go through, like it makes me like, oh my gosh, like now I understand why you had to go through this and why you had to make these decisions. It makes sense. And although she never um, went personally into academics or anything like that, she didn't have a lot of formal education. um, She understood the need, like she understands the need to have autonomy because they didn't have that much. And so um, it's just really interesting to see, like, what does mothering look like? And then oftentimes, like, how do we have to mother ourselves in -hmm. these academic spaces? Like, I often have to remind myself, like, you know, how can I take care of my little, like, Patti five-year-old or Patti 13-year-old where all these things Mm -hmm. come up? And now in graduate school, it's like seeing more of, like, having these conversations with my parents of, like, you know, let's let's reflect back on, like, those experiences and and seeing that their pressures and the things that they had to go through um we all had to mature faster than you know we were uh, we wanted you know and especially looking back I told my parents I'm like you know looking back I'm like 13 year old Patti was out here doing the most you know like she's she was rebelling to certain things but that's because you know, Latinx parenting mentioned a lot, like, about what happens in our stage, in our developmental stage at that time, like, needing to take risks, and that shows in the behavior of supposedly rebelling. But it's us, you know, seeing how the world can be different, you know, getting prepared to be on our own, and how much they didn't get a chance to do that. So it's just nice to be able to now have the tools to talk about this, and it's just like, it's so, I just seen a lot more how my family had not had the tools to communicate, to validate, to take the time to nurture and seeing how this plays a role in how many students that I meet with, it's like we become their academic parents. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about in the ways of student affairs is like, how can it be different where we don't have to give tough love, where we don't have to be so abusive, where we don't have to be like, you know what, you have to endure things that you like intuition wise is saying no. Because I'm thinking about all the times that I've been giving like unsolicited advice of like what I need to do with my career, where I need to be at timeline wise. And I'm just like, they're not taking care of like seeing like, yes, on paper, doing business, being, uh, having a certificate in research is great, but that's not what, you know, intuition wise is telling me that I feel good. So that's why I'm, you know, seeking ethnic studies. That's why I'm doing things that are not it, it, it's not resume building to you know whiteness 
but for me it's what's fulfilling my soul and and giving me the tools that I need to communicate with my family and you know heal those traumas and how can I best communicate that with my students as well like model what does that look like and no student affairs has talked about intergenerational trauma for Mm -hmm. sure but it's so clear to us now that we have these tools of like how this shows up for us and how we, instead of building connection, we're building disconnection because we're building resentment. We're not giving them the tools, the words, the, the system wise of how this functions in real time. And um, how we're saying like, we're not, we're not um, allowing not only academics to see how our family functions, but it's like also how our family doesn't see how academia functions in our professional life and so um do you want to chime in Maida? <laughs> yeah first of all thank you all so much for having me and bringing me on to this beautiful podcast and being able to share a digital space with you all um i think it's amazing that you all are doing this <laughs> and i've seen other episodes and they're so amazing and the guests and the conversations just the general platicas that you're able to have but um definitely resonate with what both of you all were saying just about kind of having an expectation of what the family is going to think about all these successes and accomplishments and then not getting them right I clearly remember when I had gotten accepted into UCLA which is supposed to be this like very you know prestigious public school or whatever you know especially with the whole college admission scandal we have white people buying seats into, into UCLA you know I had worked my ass off to get into that school and I remember I like jumped out of my computer and I was at home I jumped up and I was like oh my gosh and I was just like yelling and stuff and mom was like get this get the pass out like she was all mad like why are you yelling <laughs> and I was like mom you know like I got accepted into this school and, and I was trying to explain like it's this really good school and it's going to provide me with all these opportunities and her first comment was just like no you're not going there and I was like what like what do you mean I'm not going there like I worked so hard to get to this place that I'm at right now in my educational trajectory but I think like kind of what we're all touching on it's it's so different for Latinx families because they're so concerned with living day by day and not kind of foreseeing what's going to happen in the future right and education is something that you're supposed to invest in and you don't see the payoffs until way later on right so what does it mean to kind of go off and you know get this bachelor's take four six years whatever and then not be able to provide for your family, not be able to have a job, work, and contribute. And also just thinking about our families and how they kind of migrate right to this country. And then the fear of the families being split up. I think that that was a really big concern for my family, especially just being like the oldest and the first. And what does it mean for you to be away? What does it mean for you to not be with us anymore and not be under our household? So I think that these are all super like valid concerns that like I've experienced, you know, that we've experienced and we're like sharing space about this and, and also stuff that I want to bring into my research because this is just this like hidden narrative that like white people and just academics don't understand and we need, we really need to start like demystifying that I think because it is kind of what holds some, some Latino students back I would say and not because it's like a deficit thing but just like we're so kind of I don't know, we just need to unpack how we're like navigating our families and no one teaches us to do that, right? And we kind of start figuring out that by ourselves, so. Yeah, yeah no, it's true. And I, I, just, um, I just think that uh, as we move forward with our own, you know, if, if we have children in the future, like how we will change 
you know, some of the things that our parents did or didn't do for us when we were in these academic spaces or when we were entering them. So it's just a, I think there's a lesson in itself within this experience that we've had and um, something that we'll keep in mind for sure. And then thinking about like, how, how does academia and like success and accomplishments um, are, are showcased? You know, it's like setting us up for failure. And also, especially if we don't have the tools to understand, like, you know, like, don't internalize this, like, all these, like, negative experiences just because your parents didn't, you know, answer this way. Like, it's all of us are scared of the unknown because just as how much our parents are like, oh, my gosh, like, whatever other fears they have. And on top of that, the logistics Mm -hmm. and knowing the circumstances Mm -hmm. that we like we currently have and realistically speaking mm-hmm. like you're like como lo vamos a hacer you know like that's the first question and seeing the mm-hmm. like all the what the can'ts mm-hmm. you know and knowing that it is a valid you know concerns that we have but also like academics doesn't help either because then we go in and then we're like oh my gosh like you know it, it exacerbates the the imposter syndrome it, it makes us internalize also like the can't in this other way and so it's just the expectations that we have and the way that we have to also like not only translate literally what is happening with our parents but it's also like how like we're trying to figure out what academia is at the same time trying to explain it to our parents like the first time I told my parents like I wanted to go to graduate school not only did they answer like you don't think dinero, but it's like they really have no idea like what like that would look like and I didn't have the answer either so that didn't help yeah (laughs) but it's like how I mentioned to a lot of students it's like it's like you may not know everything but you know more than they do and just trust that you know it's going to be a process and it's going to be like my parents didn't have that like emotional reaction until they saw me walk the stage like five years later you know, <laughs> from that getting accepted to a four years straight from high school until later. Like that's when they, you know, teared up and, and they teared up more through like Rasa grad and the commencement, which makes sense, you know, and, and they were super proud. And that's when they like showed that, but did they do that in between? No, it didn't show up like that, you know, for me. And so it, mm. it's hard to, Um, have them see it until they saw like when I first got into the conference like same thing they're just like okay like I don't think even my dad heard what I said or understood what it was until he saw Facebook pictures you know like that's when they're like oh my gosh mija like wow like look at you like um you know like the way that they view conferencing is so funny because he's like mira la gira bien famosa ya te vas <laughs> and but now they're getting it a little bit as more as much as the more I like invite them to these spaces with me and so um it's just funny how they see things because I mean we see things in the way that academic and then they question it too they're like pero pa que you know so they bring really good like you know things that you know, like even going to conferences, they see it as like he does. Like that for me, I have what I would have never seen it like that, you know. And so um, they bring so much to like to the space when we invite them and when we give them the platform to talk about it, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, 
we can transition to our main topic. Um, what we wanted to ta- discuss and why we brought um, Maida to the space is because you're in the PhD, um, uh, you're in the PhD pro- like process and like experience. Wanted to demystify the PhD and like what does it feel because you went to UCLA, um, like this prestigious fellowship applications and just like what um, these elite spaces look like. Um, and also, like, if you can describe us, like, first, since you're um, uh, the backtracking, like, Maida and I met at, um, at UCSD when I went and did a summer research program um, at STARS. And so um, Dr. Francis Contreras was both of our mentors. Um, and so that's how I met Maida. And we were both fascinated about college choice. Um Dr. Contreras was looking at college choice at the UC system and I was looking at it at the CSU system. And so um, if Maida, you can talk about um, like what was the college application process and the, the choice, um, the college and application and choice process when uh, you were in high school. Yeah, so um, I think my trajectory is unique uh, because when I was, so it was before I was a senior in high school. So I had just finished my junior year um, there was this program at UCLA for migrant students. So, you know, my parents are farm workers and we often travel to different communities in different states to pick fruit, right? Um, so there's a lot of benefits that comes with that because of the migrant education program that's federally funded. And so there used to be this kind of like, almost like a summer transition program, if you will. And it was based at UCLA and all the students were migrant students. And so I had applied to that and similar, you know, to kind of my process of when I had applied to UCLA, when I applied to the summer program, that was only 30 days, you know, I was going to come back home after it was over. My mom was like, what? Like, you're not going to that? Like, who's going to take care of you? Who's going to feed you? <laughs> like, all these things. She just had a lot of concerns, I think. And it took a lot of, like, teachers and counselors from my high school saying, hey, this is, like, a good opportunity. She's going to be exposed to college early on and see what it's like to live in a dorm. And I took UCLA classes as a senior and and to kind of get that experience early on. So I think after having that experience, and obviously since we were all migrant students, like the curriculum was so culturally relevant, like the TAs, the instructors, they knew our backgrounds, they knew where we were coming from, you know, these very like humble beginnings. So they catered like a lot of the activities to that and to really empowering us and saying, you know, just because you come from this type of background or family doesn't mean that you can't be at a place like UCLA. And so after having experienced that program, I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I kind of had this image of UCLA that it was going to be like that, like this brown utopia. And so I was like, I need to come back, which was something I feel like maybe they didn't talk to us enough about. (laughs) Um, So when I had applied to like these different colleges and obviously, you know, like as a first gen Chicana, I got a lot of help from like teachers and counselors. And there was this one counselor specific that worked in the migrant education office in our community. So he would come to our our high school to work with the migrant students specifically. Um, So he helped a lot. He was like this white male, um, but he was just very like, very just empowering and he really like validated my experiences. And I remember for like the personal statement, I think you all have already mentioned this in one of your, um, in one of your episodes already, but just like the fact that no one tells you how to tell your own narrative right so even just like writing about my personal experiences I feel that are so normal and routine for me that I didn't realize you know waking up super early to like care for my sisters while they're out there picking fruits in the fields was 
like a rare unique experience that the UC wanted to hear about you know I didn't realize that that is me bringing diversity to the campus because those are just my regular lived experiences <laughs> so but I think you know ha receiving help and kind of shaping my application and and I like writing um, I was in journalism in high school so I really like that aspect of telling stories but I had never told my own story before so I think that personal statement was kind of like the first part in my trajectory where I started like owning and reclaiming my narrative and like who I was and where I was coming from so after applying to all like these different schools and when I like I said when I got that acceptance from UCLA and just kind of having to navigate that with my family and and think logistically about okay now I need to figure out like transportation systems like because at the time or my parents are still undocumented but at the time they didn't have um the driver's license that they gave, gave out to undocumented immigrants and so that was not going to be a thing, right? They were not going to drive from Porterville to LA. <laughs> that, that was like out of the question. So it was really up to me to kind of figure out these transportation systems, how I was going to get home when I needed to get home to visit my family. Um, so I feel like it was like a lot for me to kind of handle as a first generation student and, and all these kind of like hidden truths almost or, or, or things that you have to go about and figuring out for yourself. Um, that's like obviously not on the UCLA homepage. <laughs> Um, but yeah, just really thinking about, um, and I wanted to go to that school because of that experience that I had, like I said, but I mean, I, I think we can talk about that next, <laughs> but once I was there, kind of that experience was, was very different from this brown migrant utopia that I had imagined because of that summer program. And then, um, now talking about like reflecting back like describe like what it felt like once you were actually in UC UCLA yeah definitely so mm -hmm. I think like the most obviously kind of this experience of culture shock hit me really hard and I think like I was living in the dorms so I didn't know that there was like these living learning communities right so my sister currently is a freshman at UCLA as well um so when I was helping her with her housing application I was like you need to live in like the Chica next student floor because you need to protect yourself and preserve yourself and you can't be around white people because it's a terrible experience which is what had happened to me right I didn't know that you can like live in a first generation floor you can live with students of color like nobody tells you these things and since I was like the first in my family to go to college I just filled out the housing application and, and submitted it and so I was living next to a lot of white students a lot of international students and I'm like damn I'm like the only Chicana here you know and I think that that's like a very terrifying experience, especially when you're coming from these like racially segregated communities and like my whole town is Mexican, you know? And so just being, that was like my first impression, like, okay, cool. Like I'm gonna be surrounded by like all these white people and like, how am I gonna go about navigating that? And then I think too, like I was a poli-sci major. So at UCLA and like most other places as well, like UCLA is a very white male dominated field. So here I was coming in, you know, from like the small, rural town and like you know I wasn't academically prepared to be succeeding at this institution but you know somehow I got admitted so I was like okay I gotta like I gotta hustle and like look out tutoring services etc but just being in these spaces and I just remember feeling like inadequate and just like the whole imposter syndrome and culture shock and all of these feelings kind of just coming about because I would literally be like the only like you know in your discussion sections when they're smaller classes I would be like the only Chicana in there and like maybe 
like one or two black students and then the whole room was just like white males <laughs> and that to me I was like what am I doing and like I need to switch my major and it was just I didn't feel I didn't feel safe right I didn't feel at home at that place and it was so different from the summer experience that I had had previously yeah and then um I know you were in McNair right so how did you get into McNair and like how did when did you um learn about the program yeah or uh, told you about the program yeah so they have like these uh they're called peer learning facilitators at UCLA so basically you would just take a class and they had like tutoring um specifically for students of color and we would be taught by students of color and so I did a lot of that because I was understanding like all the fucking politics that I was learning about because <laughs> my politics were so just kind of limited to my community you know I didn't have that exposure initially um and through these kind of tutoring sessions, you know, like I met um, specifically my friend Cindy and she was like two years ahead of me. And, you know, she told me about all these resources. She told me about Research Rookies, which was like a program for second year students. And then she's like, and then when you get into that, then you're going to apply to McNair. And then after you get into McNair, you're going to apply to grad school. And she's telling me this as a first year. It's like my first quarter. Like I just came in. I'm like, I don't know what any of these are. And and you know but I think just having folks like break down what these things mean it opens up kind of your mind and and even just like your heart and your spirit to like the possibilities that you had never imagined that your family had never imagined and I think as I started gaining access to these spaces you meet more folks that I mean at least in the space that I was like I said it was mostly for just people of color only so I think meeting other folks of color other folks of color sorry that were already kind of connected and plugged into certain spaces and then they bring you along you know because that's that's what we do as like community as jasa helping each other like navigate these spaces and being there and caring for one another and so that's kind of just how it happened like I was in the second year program and then I, I, I knew about McNair because of Cindy had already told me about it but the folks that I had met in research rookies are like yeah like let, let me help you with your application and so I had already developed this kind of like line of femtorship and mentorship that were really just willing to be there for me. And so I think that that's real, this initial conversation that we were coming, you know, going back like full circle about like academic parenting or what does it look like to have these folks that really truly care about your success and are willing to kind of help you navigate that and demystify that is for sure like what has got me to this space. And, and especially to being in McNair, like at UCLA, um, our McNair program, our, our kind of slogan or logo is like to transform the academy. So the program there was just very much like critical race theory centered. And, you know, we were all folks of color in that space and sharing space. And we all, all had some kind of social justice mission or willing to help out our communities. So I think after learning about these spaces, I had a lot better of an experience at UCLA. And so I was like, okay, I know where to stay away from and I know where to go to to get support, right? And I think that these are resources that we have to tell, tell students early on because then there are these other students that don't get access to these resources and then they might feel afraid. They might not want to come back. You know, they might want to, the, the institution will push you out if you don't have a community. So I think important and it's how you're mentioning and especially how you're mentioning how like because I was a business major and in my first two years like I had not really met mm-hmm. you know the justice-centered people or like people that are like oh they had the ayudo you know like I went through the space let me let me help you like connect you with all these like amazing folks like 
and so it was very white spaces and so I was just like do I am I even a business person or do I see myself as like a you know an academic or and even like in student affairs like Mm -hmm. do I do I even belong in student affairs or is it this because you think that because of our limited exposure to what academics Mm -hmm. could be like we think that this is like it because this is the only experience we have and we don't really have access to go and check out other institutions and how they do things like we don't know any of this like behind the scenes like what it looks like and so I was like this close to I was like I don't know what I'm gonna do but I feel like I need to transfer out of Sonoma State and so or like start at the community college which is something I don't know what to do because then I'll start from zero again you know like that's how you feel like and mm-hmm. it's amazing that you mentioned this and and the fact that we don't have a lot of people pointing at us and saying like you should do it you know like I think you have the potential mm-hmm. and so every now like this uh, campaign that I have at, at, like at work that I'm like I bring in the conversation about graduate school so many people are like I don't know what it is but now that I heard you say what it is, I think I might be interested. You know, like, it's, it's just amazing to see, like, what that little question can do. Like, have you mm-hmm. thought about it or you should check out this program and, like, see how it is? And it's just, like, because of how we experience these programs and we understand what mentorship is and what, what like, is that? The, who was your mentor in McNair? Oh, okay, for sure. Um, so again, this was like, I literally feel like my trajectory was just like one person pointing me in one direction and opening the door. And then I just kind of met another person. And it was literally just, <laughs> I don't know, just this like telephone line of people communicating all these experiences to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it was my, my friend, Cindy, who was like my femtor and essentially also my tutor, right, for political science that had just told me that about these different advisors that existed right in education and like who were the good ones to kind of go reach out to and and so forth and so at UCLA I worked with Danny Solorzano who does like racial microaggressions and critical race theory like etc and I kind of just emailed him and like I know or at the time I didn't know like how big of a name he was or just kind of this scholar right um so I had just like emailed him and I told him my, my story. And then he was just like, oh yeah, c- come on in. Like, let's meet. And I was like, what? And so then I had told Cindy and she was like, oh my gosh, like he emailed you back and he like wants to meet up with you. And she was just like super excited for me. And I was like, okay, sure. Like I'll go meet up with him. And, and just even when I met him, he was just very like validating and reassuring. And he kind of understood my experience coming from this rural region because he had worked at Bakersfield before um at Bakersfield State and and so to me like that just opened up a whole new door of like the type of literature that I was not reading or getting from my classes obviously because I was in political science but just thinking about race and racism and white supremacy and all these like different structures that like affect our everyday lives and that I started to see affected me and my family right and so that's kind of what motivated me to be in education because I was like okay like there's these opportunities that students from these communities don't have and I can really um shape these experiences for them and and I can do that through research right and I have all these people that are willing to support me to make these changes in my community happen so uh we're gonna go on to the thank you Maida sorry (laughs) 
Thank you for sharing that. And um, we're going to go on to the next question. And that is about owning your greatness in white spaces. So you've mentioned this in some of your uh, responses about being the Latina. And um, we're curious to know how you've navigated these spaces and how you've dealt with imposter syndrome, which can include culture shock or racial and gender microaggressions, if this applies to you. Um, and if you could share a little bit about that and that experience for yourself. Yeah. Um, so I think kind of just like how I mentioned already when I was at UCLA as an undergraduate student, like I really try to stay away from toxic whiteness <laughs> and just kind of try to stay around like my POC and and just like friends that I knew that really had my back and cared about me and cared about my aspirations and why I was here um, at the university. So I think that that's something that I have to remind myself even now, right, in, in academia, because just like graduate school and academia and research, it's even wider, I feel, right? And education specifically is a very, like, white, female-dominated space, and and that's true for my department, and that's true for most spaces as well. So kind of, I don't know, and just thinking about, like, when I first started my program, you know, I had all these, like, insecurities about First of all, I'm the youngest person in our in my program. So being young, being brown, being Latina, like it was just kind of a lot, right, at the intersection of all these identities that I felt that I was carrying with me. And then I would see like the white students and they were just very like comfortable. Like they, they're, and just even having relationships with professors is something like super weird for me, right? Like, oh my God, this person is a doctor. And I, I, and then just hearing like the white students just call them by their first name, like that was something so like unfamiliar to me, just because of the experiences that I have, um, and just being in academia and and noticing that this is a very a space where you have to like perform almost right. Like I couldn't just be myself. Like I can't just come in here speaking Spanish or Spanglish or just speaking my mind in the Chicana tone that I do. Right, it has to be very filtered and watered down. I would say. Um, to kind of appease white people <laughs> um, because then they start to get uncomfortable when you start talking about, you know, issues such as race, gender, et cetera, and then you do it in a way that it's very rooted and connected mm -hmm. to your lived experience. Like when you bring up these emotions and lived experiences, people get super uncomfortable. And so I think for me, like that was something that I'm like, well, the whole reason that I'm here in academia is like for my family and community. So I'm like, I have to bring in these emotions, these experiences, and then mm -hmm. not having these conversations and just thinking about everything so theoretical and abstract while, you know, like our community members are still experiencing like educational disparities and other types of like social, cultural, financial, et cetera, issues. Like, I feel like that was just like a hard moment where I was like, okay, like, my family and community are not reflected in academia and they were for sure not reflected in in the curriculum or content of most of my graduate classes right like I mentioned most of the professors are white females so they'll bring up all these like Eurocentric like western <laughs> ways of viewing the world and I'm like what like what even is this I'm like it's not relevant <laughs> I feel to me or even to the context of California I'm like this state is hella brown like I think it's like 50 to, to, to almost 60% of the students that are graduating um, or are in the K through 12 system, like they're Latinx students. So I'm like, why are we talking about all these issues, div divorce of like race, divorce 
culture and ethnicity like it needs to be connected because these are the students that are at least in California right the majority of the population and even throughout the U.S. that's the demographic that's growing that's changing that's diversifying so I think not being yeah. able to be yourself then- is, is very hard yeah and then you even mentioned like the fact that they're in your class and then it's like, and then it becomes harder to like really point these things out to them. And then the way that they react, it's just like, you want to be very authentic because this is how you actually have experienced how whiteness impacts your life. But then it gets harder because then everyone brings up, um, it's like the, the white tears come up and then they're like, well, I've experienced like this and this, and you don't even understand. And I feel like people don't see like they just are so quick to judge me because I'm a white person like it's like all these like narrative of like how I'm the victim and then it's really hard for me to be like let me just like not say fuck you yeah as immediately as my response because that's what I want to say because I understand way more than just my own personal like it's the systemic of you you get the dynamics and the nuance of what that does except not everyone in the classroom may understand that and so if you point out and just like come like my first reaction is fuck you. The second one is like, okay, like how the hell am I going to keep it cool to try <laughs> to describe, tutor, use emotional intelligence to finesse this moment and mm-hmm. to make sure that I bring out my point without having to like immediately sound like I'm, you know, like emotionally charged and, and also understand that it's like, yes, you have also a lot of these traumas and all these things whatnot but on top of that it's white your own white people doing this Mm -hmm. to you and making sure that you also point out and you are like because we work with predominantly students of color minoritized students like we see the effects of this whiteness and these white tears and it's so hard to just like keep it cool so how do you like experience this because I want to mention, like, because a lot of people think that it's, like, a personal thing where you're bringing it in. It's, like, I'm personally attacking you without realizing, homegirl, you ain't special. It happens in every institution, in every place, you know, like, so can you bring to light how have you seen it at UCSD and UCLA? Yeah, for sure. I don't know. It is a very I think difficult thing to navigate because I'm like you don't want to be the angry Chicana like you don't want to be labeled in that way but at the Mm -hmm. same time it's just like you said like how do I control these emotions when they're happening to the students that I work with with that they happen to me that they're happening to my family and I think like at the beginning um you know when I started my program and like I mentioned I was like I was young or I still am young (laughs) (laughs) space and like you know most folks had been like teachers for like a decade or so and you know they're in their 30s 35 so I felt like I would just like shut down because I was just like what like what are we even doing here and like no one's getting it you know and I felt like I was the only one that had this Mm -hmm. lens that was viewing the world for because I had experienced it right and I don't know honestly like now and then I moved it into a point where then I would always respond and I'm like okay I have to tell this person how it is because they're not getting it and then I take a step back because mm-hmm. I'm like, damn, this is emotionally and just like mentally, physically, everything draining. Like, why do I have to be the educator? Because first of all, I'm not getting paid <laughs> to come into this space and <laughs> on like, you know, these are the chicanic experiences or whatever. And also, I'm not just like the one person to be talking about that experience in the first place. But mm-hmm. I think I, I took a step back and I was like, you know what? Like, 
I'm not here to do that work for them. Like they have to go there and do that work for themselves. And so I don't, I've experienced like multiple things where it's like, you know what, I'm just not going to say anything because I need to like preserve and protect myself. And then sometimes I'm like, I need to speak up because this is just like very infuriating to the point of like, you know, some white females like walk out of class crying. And then it's like, where's the learning moment in this, you know, and just get to go mm-hmm. out into the world and be safe. Well, when I leave this classroom and go into the world, like I still feel unsafe, you know? So I think, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that that's a very <laughs> difficult thing to navigate. And I think we talked about that when, when um, when we had called each other and just like did a check-in but it's it's just draining all around and and I think it's like up to you you know and like pick and choose your battles because I don't think that you should be out there educating everyone because everyone doesn't deserve your education and you're not out there doing this shit for free you know but at the same time if something hits mm-hmm. you you know hard and you want to put that person in their place <laughs> I also feel like you should take the opportunity to do that and also, like, yeah. um, are you mentioning, like, the, the kind of skills are, you know, like, kind of, for me, the way that I preserve and also, like, speak out of these things? Because there there comes to a point where I'm like, there's no way I can be silent all yeah, the time. Definitely. And so when I am going to speak out, it's going to be one hell of a, you know, teaching. And if you still don't fucking get it, well, at least the rest of the classroom, someone is out here going to, like, it's going to click for them. Mm-hmm. because the classroom is like a microcosm of like what is going to be amplified out exactly. in the field yeah. and so um, there are times where I have to preserve that energy to like okay I have all my like little you know like I'm gonna you know hit you with this and that and this yeah. you know like in this argument and preserve for that and then and other times you're just like okay if I've already said it I ain't gonna do it and I'm gonna do something else you know like if you don't get it I'm gonna spend and nurture the students that I mentor to be like okay we need more of us saying this thing and I'm going to give you the tools to learn so I have now invested way more in the energy of my actual job I mean like girl you gotta like think about you can't be teaching 24 7 I should we should all get honorary PhDs at this point because damn we're educating everyone and then trying to educate ourselves you know like and try to elevate to the next level and so Mm -hmm. it's so real and so needed for all of us to just like spend so that's why I'm like if I'm going to do education pieces it's going to be y'all better read my book y'all better (laughs) read my you know anything that I publish or if I present go there and that's where you can get those questions asked but I'm not doing it for free out of like all the time listen to my podcast that's when now I'm like you know what go listen there and hopefully you learn something you know (laughs) I also think it becomes like super complex too just like at the graduate level because like I said like most of my instructors have been white females and so it becomes this weird thing where like there's like these white students right in the class and then the white instructor and then I say something but then I I can totally tell the instructor is like backing up and supporting this white student and so there's like all these power dynamics that are happening that makes it even harder for me to get my point across because the instructor isn't going to see it through my perspective. And they do always kind of validate and back up this white student. And like, oh, they're just trying to ask a question, like, don't get frustrated or they're just trying to learn. This is supposed to be a learning space. And it becomes very detached from like the, the point I was making and the feeling that I was feeling. Yeah. Definitely. So um, let's um, 
move the conversation or continue the conversation and just get your uh, input into any insider secrets, tips that you have that you can share with us and the audience about applying to PhD programs and prestigious fellowship applications um, that you've, through your experience. Yeah, definitely. So I think for the PhD programs, um, like, I mean, this is kind of just like my own personal, like what I wanted, right? I really wanted to stay in California. I did want to have some kind of connection with my family still and my community of Porterville. Kind of finding that out first, like what is it that you want for yourself and then start looking for schools and programs from that lens. Because you know, I had also applied mm-hmm. to programs at a state and I had gone to visit them. And then I was super scared. I was like, what? Like, I don't want to come here. So I kind of wasted that energy and time, resources and money <laughs> applying to that school, visiting mm-hmm. that school. And I was like, you know, it wasn't very realistic mm-hmm. for me. So kind of think about about it from that stance, right? And then I think, like, I was really interested in working with, like, a Chicana faculty because I had never had that experience before. Like, my mentor was a Chicano male at UCLA. And so I really wanted to work with a mujer, someone that was going to understand, like, what it means to be a woman in academia, a woman of color specifically. And and so obviously, like, we, well, we had already mentioned, like, looking for the Chicanas in academia is super easy because there are so few of them that have that tenure track position because they keep us in that kind of lecture position for forever. But so then I started looking through that. So I think finding some a faculty and if you can interact with them beforehand, because, you know, just on paper, they're going to look nice. But what does it mean for your personalities and energies to vibe, I think is really important. So like Patricia mentioned, like I work with Dr. Contreras and I had talked to her even before I had applied to the school and she was just she seemed very like caring and like motherly to me and she was speaking to me in Spanish and and like I think she mentioned like her husband had lived in the Central Valley before so there were just like a lot of connections that I felt that I was like you know what this is really beautiful and like I felt that with with you all too like the relationships that you all developed um in the second episode that I was listening to I'm like wow this is exactly what academia should be it should be like a familia and we should be supporting each other and like sisterhood and bringing the next generation so I think finding that person that works for you is super important <laughs> and then I think a third point that that I want to make too um and it goes back to like just like on navigating whiteness like I guess I wasn't really too interested in knowing who was going to be in my cohort because I was like oh you know like I'm coming to UC- UCSD I had already made up my mind but I think also assessing like who you're going to be around because it becomes very draining to people every single day have them in the same class and, and like for two years, right, like I'm finishing my coursework now, but I've seen them every single day. So I think just like finding out who's going to be in that space and who you're always going to be around and whether that's going to make you feel comfortable or not. And and also where the institution is located, because like I'm located right now in La Jolla or La Jolla, because I'm like, it's not. It's <laughs> like, and I think stuff and like, yeah, it's in San Diego County, but it's hella white and affluent. And like, I'm not used to living in an area like this. So I have to like drive super mm-hmm. far to go get tortillas and like bandus and things like that like things that I was used to at home but I think those are other points just like you know reflecting on who you are what, what you like what you're interested in and, and how that program that faculty and just like the institution in general is going to be a good match and I know that that's hard to navigate because institutions don't love us and they're never going to love us um, but I think try to make the both the 
sorry, the best out of like these shitty situations that, that we're placed in. And um, for fellowship applications, so I had shared with Patricia that I was awarded the Ford pre-doctoral um, fellowship, and which I'm so grateful for because, you know, my department doesn't have any funding. Um, so now I'll be funded through the end of like my PhD, which is like, awesome. But I think also like when I was applying to it, you know, I felt like imposter syndrome all over again. I'm like, what makes me worthy of getting this like huge fellowship? And are they really going to choose me? You know, they say they want diversity, but I was like, how, <laughs> how much do they really want it? Cause I can bring it, you know, like I've had all these. Um, but I think just reminding myself I'm like I have all these super unique experiences and ideas that are very rooted in who I am my community and identity and I think that that showed through in the application and I I really think that that's why I got it because I was true to who I was and you can see that from like my trajectory the program that I chose and like the interests that I have now so I think like like just be you and be honest and you know bring yourself into these applications and and you'll get recognized for it, I think. Yeah. And then um, uh, Adriana and I had discussed this out in uh, this conversation about the elite spaces. And um, Adriana, your mentor talks about this. And uh, I want to see like your input, Maida, about this, uh, the elite spaces. And like we were mm. mentioning about like poverty porn and all these mm-hmm. things. So Adriana, take it. Yeah, so I one of my advisors uh, is uh, Dr. Anthony Jack. He just wrote a book called The Privileged Poor. And he talks about how elite institutions are not um, designed to serve first-generation low-income students. So it talks about, like, the few students that do make it to these elite institutions like Harvard and, you know, all the other ones. Um mm-hmm how they there's this um unwritten there aren't are unwritten rules and that these students are coming in not knowing and therefore then they're at a disadvantage when they get here so one thing is getting accepted into these institutions and another thing is actually being able to run like be able to um, maneuver them so um if anyone is out there listening, I would recommend this book, um, The Privileged Poor, and by Tony Jack, Anthony, jo- Anthony Jack, um, because it really does provide an insight. And, and, and although his focus is in undergraduates, I think it's still, um, some of it does stem through to graduate school. So um, I know that at least at Harvard, they're trying to um, refocus their their support systems to serve first generation and diversity, like might I mentioned, like they're talking about diversity and wanting more diversity and accepting more students of color and from different socioeconomic backgrounds. But once they're here, at least at the graduate level, I don't think they're there yet when it comes to serving them and providing them with the financial support because I mean, because it's one of the things that's often what stands in the way from, you know, getting accepted and actually attending the, the institution. So right now there's a lot of movement, a lot of conversations around this, um, but it's something that that it's really prevalent right now. And I don't know, Maida, like if you have any input into your experience and, and how you've been able to m- maneuver these, this, these environments or an environment like this. Yeah. Um... <laughs> 
Oh my god, I'm just gonna put okay, so like I mentioned with this like fellowship application, right? Um nobody helped me on it or with it. Um I kind of just did it by myself and and that was kind of also my fault. Um because I had started super late, you know, and there was no time for me to kind of get feedback or advice on like my writing or whatever. But I was like, you know what, if, if this is my writing, like it's gonna it's good or it's not. <laughs> it's like, but I think like after you know now that I'm like this Ford fellow and having this kind of elite title attached to my name which is super weird for me um, now my department is like looking at me like oh like I'm this new shiny like sparkly person and and blasting it all over like their department website and I'm like you haven't been supporting me like mentally physically emotionally and now it's kind of this just like wanting to take credit for something that I did by myself is just totally like I don't know like yeah we're here for like the students and stuff like that but then they're not really there to support to support us and we were also having this similar conversation and in one of my higher education classes um on Thursday um because a professor he's new he's an I think he's Filipino but he's an Asian male and he recently hired and you know he asked us like oh why did you choose this program and that was kind of like Mm -hmm. our like how we were going to introduce ourselves and so I was like oh like don't ask us that question like it's triggering and he was just like oh like can you explain more you know and I'm like oh well you know our program is called like transforming education in diverse society but none of us have really unpacked what transformation means what diversity means what what equity means and obviously these are these concepts are going to mean different things for different people but like as a department and even institution we should have like a similar goal I feel especially as an institution, you know, based in California and like we're right near the border. So we should have missions around, you know, our geography and where we're located and which populations and groups we're serving. And so I think that that's something that I've seen, right, in these conversations with faculty, with white faculty, that they have different conceptions of what equity and diversity means that are so different from the way that I conceptualize that. And and I think you all mentioned that like in your fourth episode where, where Bobby, you're like, you know, diversity means like rep- like reparations and like affirmative action, like these, <laughs> and like that's so real, right? Because I'm like, that's how I think about these things too. Because we're not gonna get anywhere if the institution is continuously putting us down, but at the same time, like blasting us all over like their newsfeed and like their pamphlets and saying like, oh yeah, look at this is diverse, and then you come to the campus and it's totally not. <laughs> I think all- oh yeah. yeah, and then even like talking about like Ariana, like the um events that you put out can you speak on that and like how it's just so interesting like because I've like when Ariana and I worked to bring North Bay Women of Color Conference to Sonoma State like it was blasted everywhere like oh my gosh you know Patrice Cooler is the Mm co-founder of Black Lives Matter and then I'm like what the hell like when we had to like work our asses off to make sure we had funding and the space reserved for those events. Mm -hmm. I did not see that kind of support. Like if anything, it was constantly like being told like, why, why do you need it? Like, like having to justify all of these things and having to fight for it, just being women of color. And having to rationalize, why do you need a space for just women? Yeah, and then white women wanting to be in those spaces, like, and even women of color allowing 
white women to like take up those spaces and I'm just like I had to constantly had to be like no I wanted to be women of color only you know like <laughs> one event it just one event of the whole year y'all like can I just have that and even then it's just one day a few hours no, the world isn't gonna you know end just because your face isn't in there you know like chill but um Ariana can you talk about like your experience like with this and the media and how like programs are just like, what do they do mm-hmm. to us about those moments yeah so I mean yeah definitely it, it depends on the institution I think I've had a, a, a more positive experience at Harvard than I did at Sonoma State trying to bring speakers and trying to reserve spaces um, I generally think that it what makes a difference is the leadership so having POCs, people of color, women of color in leadership positions to support your ideas, to support your um, events makes a huge difference because then you're not bumping into these bureaucratic, um, what is it, challenges or uh, impediments that, they, that, that are created. You know, they're not needed. Um, so I put on three events this spring as an, a student uh, organizer and. I, I was able to bring in Danae Joseph with Dr. Cornell West, Jen Park with um, one of our uh, lawyers here, and Dr. Gonzalez with uh, other panelists. And those were three separate events, and it was it was an it was a project or um, speakers a speaker series about uh, narratives of self reliance and solidarity. So they were all revolving around immigration, and. And it was something that hadn't been done before, again, because, you know, we haven't had as many undocumented students on campus who have had the support or have had the opportunities to bring these speakers. Um, So it was definitely the first time, but it was also uh, very empowering to have the support. Like, for example, me, my, my supervisor has been super supportive of my ideas and hasn't micro, um, manage me right which is so important she knows that I was a professional before so she's been able to like let me lead and also having the support of a team so through undocu allies being the co-president having you know my co-president support these these efforts as well so it's been a group a group effort and um, it was definitely a different experience and it was enlightening even with the communications director supporting this highlighting it promoting it um, was very interesting, a very interesting contrast, um, may I say, <laughs> from our previous experiences trying to bring these conversations to light. And, you know, given the type of um, setting that I'm in uh, as an, at an Ivy League, so it's really cool that the Graduate School of Education has been very open and supportive of these efforts. And I think that's what matters because then slowly but surely we're chipping away at these, you know, that layers um, – of challenges or like lack of discussions that are not being, you know, had at these institutions. And so slowly but surely we're chipping away at that and bringing these conversations to light and also highlighting people that are doing the work um, out in the field and breaking down misconceptions, breaking down stereotypes. And, you know, they were all recorded and they've been shared online so that it's not only accessible to those who are here at the institution, but also accessible to the public, which I think is very important um, in helping educate, you know, the entire 
um, public. So it's been a more positive experience and that's why I was able to do it because I had the support system as we were talking about uh, of mentorship, mentorship, people that, that see our vision and support us along the way. So um, that was my experience putting those events on and I'm really happy with the outcome. And, you know, I, I, I just look forward to what else can happen the next year with like whoever, with the incoming class and what other ideas are brought to the plate and to the institution. Yeah. And then um, how did your program and stuff like that, we were mentioning about like those stories that get highlighted and go viral and then your experience of like as an undocumented immigrant, like, do you see that kind of support? So it's like, you know how like it, it you're broadcasted everywhere and they're like, oh my gosh, like look at the diversity mm. and how Maida said like the pamphlets, the damn pamphlets. Yeah. <laughs> So what would you say, like, these elite mm-hmm. spaces, like, are they really welcoming um, mm-hmm. to students when they arrive to the campus? Mm. Yeah, at least. And that's something that I did mention to my supervisor, because, like, they put that story about um, the story about highlighting the events that I put on. And I, I, on the front page of the Harvard Graduate School of Education's homepage, and I was like, like this is wonderful but I also was wary that maybe an incoming student who's trying to make a decision as to whether or not to attend Harvard will base their decision off of that article making it sound like oh there is support and there is a budget and there is you know leadership going on around these issues and and I don't want to um that was my work as a graduate student um in some in as uh, the intern for the office of student affairs so I don't want to miss guide or miss you know like um advertise that the entire institution is doing this work because it's not um it's one school and so um i do it's one person it's one person you know you take me out and then that it ends there um and so that's something that i've been having i had a conversation with my supervisor about it like i want to this is where the institution has come has to come in and like and take leadership and like hire someone full time to leave these efforts and not just one person but train the faculty train the staff trained different departments to understand the basic knowledge about how to support undocumented students or what it means to be an undocumented student at, at an Ivy League institution so that when if that person leaves it doesn't go with them like all of that programming all of those events um and I think overall, like looking back, I can say that it is welcoming, at least at the graduate school of education. It could be different at the other schools because it, they may be less diverse. Um, but at the graduate school of education, I can say it has been welcoming. It has been like the faculty are receptive, responsive, um, which I appreciate. And that was a really different experience for me at Sonoma State, where I was basically thrown into the wolves, as you could say. <laughs> And you had to figure it out on your own. And so, but that has, that's kind of the experience I expected to have, but it has been the opposite, which I'm really grateful for. Yeah. And then moving forward. So we can each answer this question. Um, What sustains us in the programs that we're in and from our trajectory looking at it, because undergrad, it looks very different from graduate school. Uh, what keeps us healthy and what keeps us going like knowing that we have to endure constant hostility and mm-hmm. I mean it may not be in that particular moment in our program but it might be outside uh, especially outside of the academia where we live 
near the town uh, mm-hmm. we might experience this so you can look at different places and then uh, what keeps us going and then how do we continue like to help us continue showing up in academia mm-hmm. whoever wants to start <laughs> I, I can start um down <laughs> I'm like this question is heavy but necessary I think but I definitely do think that I do it for my family like they may not understand what I'm doing here and every single time I go home my dad's like wait what are you doing again and I'm like I'm on vacation and so you're trying to be a teacher and I'm like well kind of like for college students and he's like I'm going to teach and I'm like I want to teach him education <laughs> but you know I do it for them like all the sacrifices that they've made for me um to be in this place that I am at now like I really want to you know pay them back and buy them a house and like all these kind of material things that they don't have as farm workers I really want to make that up for them and and I also do it for like my community right like the students that are not here in academia and that were not there at UCLA and like the students that kind of stayed in our community and didn't have opportunity and what would it look like if someone just opened a door for them and kind of going back to that whole like academic parenting and like what would it look like if someone had nurtured them and you know water the flowers and and they'll bloom right and so and so I do it for them as well and I also do it for like the students kind of the next generation right the generation that will be here one day because you know I see the way that academia is now and I really do want to change that so I know that I need to stick it through and kind of just go through this hostility and endure it and find ways to kind of let it out but but so that one day I can be faculty and I can change the way that the next Chicana feels right and Mm-hmm. And also, you know, just, like, the friends that I have made while being here, like, they're, they're all primarily, like, Chicanx, Latinx, or Black um, identified, and just kind of having them, like, save me a seat, or, like, if I can't make it to class because I'm sick, like, send me the notes, so just kind of building that community, I think, is super important, and, you know, it goes away against this, like, neoliberal, like, individualistic, like, mindset that academia tries to ingrain in you, but I'm like, no, like, we come from these collectivist communities and we're very like familial or family oriented. So like we need to continue to do that in academia. So I think I'll say that for now. <laughs> yeah. And, and for me, I would say for me, it has been creating a support system. So I think for when I came to Harvard, that was one of the concerns that I had that I wouldn't be able to find my community Um, because I didn't know how diverse or not diverse it would be. And given that it's so exclusive, um, that was one of the areas that I was looking into. And um, thankfully, a lot of my friends, my current friends um, come from, well, most of them are from California, but um, they're Latino, Latinas. And I was able to establish that connection early on in my academic experience that I was able to then, you know, have my little group of support and go to them, complain to them, <laughs> have a cheese with, um, have tea time <laughs> mm-hmm. um, after our courses and ha- be able to have these conversations with them um, was vital to my survival here. Um, not that it was horrible. I just, it was just helpful to have like someone who's going through the same experience or the same uh, conversations and discussions in class and be able to debrief with them afterwards. Um, also having um, a good supervisor. So having that like relationship, authentic relationship with my supervisor was helpful because I, I knew I could count on her 
not just for work but also academic because she already has gone through the process of getting her master's and so now she's getting her doctorate and that was super super helpful to have her as my support system outside of my friends so having that all around was definitely helpful and I think just self-care in general like that was something I didn't do enough last semester and that I'm actually implementing this semester because one I have more time and also I have um built that into my schedule so you know should it be swimming should it be going to the gym should it be like going um out and dancing it's all like revitalizing and it, it just adds to like my energy or something to look forward to or something to keep going you know it just gives me a break from academia it like I, I have a mental break like a break and then come back to it and continue continue hustling continue working yeah that's all like pretty similar to mine I think coming into graduate school um I had to really evaluate and think about okay girl you really burned yourself out a lot in undergrad Mm -hmm. um really think about where do you want to put your energy towards Mm -hmm. knowing that it's not if society's gonna accept you it's like when are they gonna be hostile Mm -hmm. so like always knowing that it's it's not thinking about oh my gosh I'm gonna be shocked that white supremacy is here you know like where it shows up or I'm being othered or excluded it's like knowing it's gonna happen prepare accordingly and believing when people say or warn us like believing them and being like okay how can we all like create this community care of people because sometimes you can't do Um, Mm self-care sometimes you need help from other people to help you with that Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me it's really knowing you know it's some sort of comfort I guess knowing that you know life is going to be difficult regardless so Mm -hmm. even if I didn't go into academia any other field what's the alternative it's still going to be violent it's still going to be very you know aggressive it's going to be very exclusive um Mm -hmm. so for me it's like surrounding myself with people that think the way that I do or have the same vision the same imagination the same hope that -hmm. things can be different um Mm -hmm. and even looking at some academics who like really internalized a lot of these like terrible toxic academic traits of what is valuable because for me I'm like I'm tired of having to justify my existence I'm tired of having to tell people like yeah see my value you know like I'm fuck that I don't need external validation anymore like I need my own validation if I'm good enough for myself I did enough and simply existing is resisting so like I you know like just being here check done you know like but not on top of that, but I'm like, I, I need to remind myself of the passions that I want to continue doing. Like, I, like what got me here in the first place? Like, meeting students and hearing their stories and being like, oh, this is the reason. Like, I, now I know why. Like, because I tweeted this week, I was just like, I was just fed up with, like, counselors and advisors misguiding people. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm like, you know what? We can't change the past, but we can definitely change the direction here. You know, and and it sucks that we're going to have to take a little bit longer. And so telling the students, like, this is a work that we're going to do together. Like, I'm not going to let you out and, like, saying, like, you should be doing this without giving you that resource and that support. So the capacity that I can with my 20 hours as a graduate (laughs) assistant, we're going to make the most of it. And we're going to work together. And we're going to look 
work and, and it doesn't have to end until like I'm done here and I graduate with my master's degree you know like this is a work where we're going to do continuously every single day in whatever capacity it looks so right now I'm not looking at a specific title I'm not looking at a specific anything like for me my value is what is the general sense of feeling that I want to have and that support that I need because the last week I did a ropes course thing and I hate heights and Mm. so when I was like on top of the thing where you have to drop and I was just like oh my gosh like um and we had to do all these like building exercises and stuff like that and so I'm like it was amazing how much we can accomplish if we have the right resources and support Mm -hmm. like it literally took this guy lifting me up to reach to the next thing just because I was short and I couldn't reach the other thing you know like (laughs) little things like that and when I wanted to give up like this white lady was like what like what kind of support do you need like mm. let us know how we can help you get to the next step mm. and I was like you right home girl like I need to like express my need like if I have if I need like help and guidance or something like that I need to say <clears throat> and not be so embarrassed that I do need that extra support mm-hmm. um, because I mean I wasn't born knowing like university policy you know like <laughs> I, I didn't know how to write grants you know coming out of the womb you know like and no one does so like knowing that and just being like you know what if I need help pay my tuition I need to go up to the coordinator and state that there's no shame Mm -hmm. and embarrassment of poverty because guess Mm -hmm. what it all affects us and Mm -hmm. no sirve like callandome like just having that worry wallow me up Mm -hmm. you know so that's the lessons that I've learned that I'm just like you know what we all each like even creating this podcast is some way for us to reconnect and set some time to validate all of us if that's all we can do, like, that's all we can yeah. do, you know? Yeah. And that, that, that's a great, um, uh, what is it called? Reminds me of this excerpt from Anthony, uh, Anthony Jack's book that I'd like to share with you. <laughs> um, I just want to read a, a, a passage of it and then you can all grab his book and read it. It's on page 194. And he talks about um, the answer is not to pluck the lucky few out of their distressed communities and place them in an environment of abundant resources. The answer is to bring those incredible resources into distressed communities. When lower income students have access to resources similar to those of their wealthier peers, they can and do acquire and later use the skills needed to succeed in college and other mainstream institutions. The privileged poor provide compelling evidence for this. The privileged poor students at what he calls renowned, uh, renowned university, whom we met in this book, moved through college in ways similar to their wealthy peers. These students' remarkable achievements are possible not because they are better or more worthy than the other poor kids on their block, but rather because they have worked incredibly hard and have had access to incredible resources. We should strive to make th- those resources the norm. Closing this opportunity and resource gap, however, would require addressing the entrenched structural inequalities that handicap America's forgotten neighborhoods and neglected public schools. That entrenchment is so deep and those inequalities so vast that radical change can seem impossible. Our current political leadership has not demonstrated either the spine or the vision for instituting that kind of broad change. So that's just like, you know, what it kind of um, goes well in with what we have been discussing so far about institutions having to 
make the change so that more students have access and can not only afford you know higher education but can also survive it equipped with the right resources and the right um, information and mentorship and mentorship that they need to you know to maneuver this system yeah and not giving us opportunities that like are not going to really set us up career-wise because even how the book mentions like um i read some excerpt of like what do minoritized students experiences are given like what are the work study experiences like cleaning toilets is not going to let you Mm -hmm. develop anything Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. exactly so um i think we're ending the um this episode with our wonderful guest, Maya. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I just want to, I guess, uh, close off with one last question or opportunity for comments, words of inspiration that you would like to leave our audience with. All right. Well, again, thank you all so much for having me. But I think this definitely, like, shout out to the listeners and to the Chicanas Latinas out there trying to make it into academia. But just like do you and like you belong in these spaces and we really need you in these spaces because these spaces are not going to change unless there's more of us Mm -hmm. um so I think even though like it may seem difficult in the process like just like Patricia said right like seek out these resources and find the people that are going to get you to where you need to be because I need you here (laughs) along along for the ride like all of us together you know changing this for like our community Yeah, thank you so much for sharing those great um, inspirational words. We definitely need more of us in these academic spaces. And more of us um, like working together in different places in academia. Yeah, in different capacities mm-hmm. like podcasts, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so um, thank you for all of our listeners. Um, you can all email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shout outs and listener letters uh, we want to actually give a big shout out to academic mommy uh, for sending yes. us these beautiful stickers called making chingona moves um, and for you know <laughs> encouraging words for starting this podcast and just us evolving and learning how to do this <laughs> since all of us are always recording all three of us are actually in different locations uh, <laughs> and time and time zones, time zones. <laughs> Um, uh, check their uh, webpage on they have a blog and stickers and so if you need some also some cool stickers and stuff I would check their page out um, mm-hmm. and then you could also record a listener message on the Anchor app that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes you can follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter X Code Switchers if you want to support this podcast and our um, definitely contribute to our graduate school fund for any of us uh, please make sure to <laughs> write in the comments on Venmo say like which episode you want to sponsor and uh, us at Chicano Code Switchers. Uh, thank you all for tuning in for this week's episode. And until next time, thank you, ladies. Yes, thank you. Until next time, bye. bye.